feels like breaking new ground in Christ's community, but in another in another sense, I think I think y'all will all be surprised at how familiar this whole thing feels. I think uh, this will just be a continuation of what we've already been doing here at Christ Community Church in terms of um, not even, not just what we look at, but how we look at it, how we approach um, every every degree of our tradition. Um, so. Um, I've got handouts for everybody. Um, uh, most of y'all know that I typically try to avoid using notes as much as possible. Um, but for this first week, I really think it's important that we that we get this first week right. This is this is going to be the this is like pouring the concrete that we can then build the structure on, you know, for the whole rest of the series. So if um, you know that this this lesson may feel a little more academic and a little more. Um, um, we'll kind of figure out the pace as we go because I'm not really sure how much discussion will be needed. I don't. I, yeah, we're gonna kind of. I'm sort of feeling out the study just as much as you guys are at this point. Just kind of figuring out how best to tailor it to our our church's needs, but. Um, but I do have some basic notes that I will be using as reference, and that's the same thing that you guys have. Um, it's this sort of handout. Um, it's a two-sided page. Um, the, the first page is sort of um, more facts, you know, historical-type stuff that we can use as a reference point. I'm not going to at any point just go through systematically and read through the whole thing because that was why I printed out so that you guys can do that. I, we don't have to waste time just going through point by point, but we can use it as a reference. And when questions come up, and you know, and when we're talking about you know certain historical things or doctrinal things, we can use this sort of handout as a as a reference point as we go, just to just to keep the ball rolling. Um, and on the back, we'll later on in the study today, we'll go through the stuff on the back. It's just sort of some. Um, just some statements that we can all decide as a group if we can use those as a as a foundation to build on. Um, we're all coming at this from different backgrounds and different um, assumptions about these books. Um, some of them more informed than others, and I think the most productive use of our time this week is to, before diving in, make sure that we all have at least somewhat of a common ground approach to these books. If we can all agree on some some basic ground rules, you know, uh, then we know that we're not going to get into heresy and we're not going to go off the rails. And uh, we kind of we all agree that okay, here's our framework for looking at these books, and this is the best way as a church to approach it. So, does that all sound good so far? Um, this is going to be informal, sort of setting the stage. There may be times. As I'm talking, um, that you guys have, uh, you know, thoughts that you want to share, and I welcome that. But I also may need at times some space to like go through my whole trail of argument. Like I may need some. There may be some times that are more lecture, just because it kind of has to be. I kind of need to uh, have like the whole space to, you know, it may be a whole paragraph of thought that needs to be uh, uh, as clear as I can possibly make it. So what I've done is I've got lines on the sides of the handout. So if you guys have any thoughts uh, that, that come to mind that you want to share, write them down so that then when we come to the, you know, when I come, okay, here's a break. Do you all have anything? What do you guys have to share? Then it's ready at hand. Because um, I do want to really get, I want to I make sure that I have a good sense of how you all are approaching this and what you all are thinking. So, And I do welcome as much interaction and dialogue as we can have with a study like this. So. Um, so there we go. The first place that I think we should probably begin is, is what are these books that we'll be looking at? 
specifically? What, what's the, you know, it's a very finite set group of books. And uh, that is one reason we'll be getting into, you see in the handout, um, different possible titles for this group of books. Um, the most common name for these books that we know of as Protestants is the Apocrypha. But um, I don't like that title. I think it's unhelpful. Um, I think uh, Apocrypha means hidden thing. It means, it implies a secret. Well, there's nothing secret about these books. There's nothing hidden here. These are, and we'll go over this later. Uh, I'm sure this will come up at some point in more detail, but these books have been in our tradition of Scripture since before the New Testament and up until just the last 150 years. So there's nothing secret about these. These, these have been a part of our tradition of Scripture since we've, I mean, since we've had a tradition of Scripture, basically. Um, so that's why I don't like the term apocrypha, and as much as I can, I'm going to try to avoid using that term. Um, I may do it on occasion just from habit, but um, I have sort of coined my own phrase that I'm trying to teach myself to use that I think is probably the most helpful way to talk about these books, and that is I'm calling them the, uh, the peripheral canon. And uh, I've been... You know, I've been thinking through sort of the right way to approach these books. And for me, I think that best captures what we're talking about. The other uh, titles that you might hear are uh, Deuterocanon, which means secondary canon. Canon is just the corpus of scripture. It's just a group of books that are authoritative. So that's all that canon means. Um, Deuterocanon is it's Greek for secondary canon. And the idea is that as these books... Uh, were incorporated into our tradition, uh, for the most part, they've had sort of their own category. Um, instead of being sprinkled into the Old Testament itself, they've sort of been bracketed off, almost like an appendix, and have had their own group. And so that's why, that's why that phrase secondary canon is sometimes used. Um, uh, pseudepigrapha is kind of a bigger category of books that were not necessarily written by the author that they say they were written by, and some of these books may or may not fit into that group. You know, some of this is left up to speculation, and uh, so there, there are other books that are pseudepigraphal that are not in this group. That's kind of a big picture uh, group of books. And there are other books that are considered apocryphal that are not in this group. Um, some of y'all know that I'm a big fan of the Book of Enoch. I think it, I've gotten a lot out of that book, but that's not in this group. That is not. We're not going to be discussing the Book of Enoch in this study because that is less a part of our tradition. And the whole reason for going through this is to incorporate something that, and we'll get into this, that's already part of our tradition, and just kind of being more explicit about it and kind of sort of calling attention to it and saying we this is already part of the structure of our theology of how we worship this is this is in our lectionary there are some of y'all may not know this i don't know but there are readings from the apocrypha in our lectionary that we just don't include in our bulletins but they're there it is a part of the tradition of scripture that we use in our worship so um peripheral canon is kind of a middle ground way of talking about these books and um, we can talk more about this throughout the study as we need to but just setting the stage I'm using the word canon because I'm approaching these as part of our tradition of scripture and we can talk about what that means and we can talk about you know whether or not they're on the level of like New Testament books showing my hand, I don't think they are I, you know, I'll go ahead and put that out there I don't think they're on the same authoritative level as like Paul's epistles or the gospels um, and yet they have been in our Bibles until only 150 years ago so I'm including the word canon because I, I want to treat them with the respect they deserve as part of our Bibles um, that has been the place that they've held um, until very recently in time. But they're also on the periphery. They are, they are peripheral. And um, 
and I do not consider them to be on the same authoritative level as, you know, as the Gospels or Paul's epistles. Um, there are, well, well, we'll get into that more later. How does that sound so far? I don't want to muddy the waters too much, but how, how are we doing so far? Just with calling these books the peripheral canon, is that something that maybe we can get behind for purposes of this study, or is that just going to be kind of a distraction? Is it is it jumping far too ahead for you to say why? I mean, because I didn't I didn't realize that that's new knowledge to me that they were in the Bible 150 years ago. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to ask. So, so why, why they took so, them out? So when Columbus came over, any Bible they had had the apostles. Yes, had the, yes, I did. Absolutely. That. This is the Geneva Bible, and this was written. This was, when was this put together? 1885. 1560. 1560. I could be wrong. Okay. Did y'all catch that? This was a Bible that was made in the 1500s. This is the Geneva Bible. Geneva, yeah. This is the Bible that Shakespeare would have used. This is older than King James. And here you see a section. So they were all put in the back. They were put in the back, yes. I do have a timeline there on your handouts uh, that may be helpful for this question. Um, so, and so maybe, yeah, maybe the best thing would be for us to version, go so. through that. Yeah, if that's, a, if that's an important question that we need to settle now, then let's go ahead and go through that. Uh, it's so, not important. I just found it interesting. So they put it in the back because they even felt like it was something different from Well, let's the look at what they say here. Yeah. This is their introduction to the Apocrypha. And it's gonna, I'm going to try to do this, but their, Fs look like, their S's look like F's, so yeah, I may yeah, have to yeah, hesitate yeah. at times. The, the books that follow in order after the prophets unto the New Testament are called the Apocrypha. Is books which were not received by a commune consent to be read and expounded publicly in the church, neither yet serve to prove any point of Christian religion. So they were not using these books to form their doctrine, is what it's saying. Save inasmuch as they had the content of the other scriptures called canonical to confirm the same or rather whereon they were grounded. But as books proceeding from godly men were received to be read for the advancement and furtherance of the knowledge of the history. Um, so they're valuable in sort of setting the stage for the New Testament. That's one argument. To me, that's a weaker argument. To say, oh, these books are good for history. That's kind of like saying they're not really any good. But um, uh, For the, uh, the instruction of godly manners. So now we're getting into more practical. This is instructive for our faith. Um, and yet not on the same authoritative level. Which books declare that at all times God had in a special care of his church. And left them not to utterly destitute of teachers and means to confirm them in the hope of the promised Messiah. That is really important. We will see as we go through these books that they are deeply and profoundly Christological. Um, and that is probably our best entrance into these books is to talk about how, um, how expectant this period of history was for the Messiah. Now this is during the 400 years of silence. Silence in quotations because these books don't sound very silent. This, there was a lot going on here. It just so happened that after Malachi and after this period, there's a lot of uh, tumultuous time in Jewish history. And during that time, these books are caught up into the Septuagint, the Greek tradition. These books were never considered scripture by the Jews. And that's an important thing that we should probably call attention to. Were these books written, or most of them, or all of them, during that? During that period. Yeah, um, at the very least written down in a form that we have today. Our, our, te our source texts are all Greek. Greek. So this would have been after Alexander the Great. Nothing in Hebrew. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think there's any Hebrew texts. They're, they're very Jewish. They are Jewish texts, but they're Hellenized Jewish texts. Um, and that's a very important distinction to make. And that is one reason why it dropped off of our Bibles. It's because we base our Old Testament on the Hebrew. Um, other traditions in Scripture uh, have put more emphasis on the Greek Old Testament. So something else that I have read is that uh, I think it's important to note that even, I mean, I, I don't think we necessarily find ourselves, at least I don't pull out the Geneva Bible every day to study yeah. But we do still study the King James Version. Yes. And uh, 
first editions of the King James Version did, did include the Apocrypha. Yeah, if anyone here has a facsimile of the 1611, they had an anniversary, like a 400-year anniversary yeah. King got, James. Got it's I got the Apocrypha in it. Out. Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay. And I believe it has a little caveat like this one did. Oh, okay. Like this is how we consider these books. This is you know why it's included in our scriptures. Yeah, it would be in the back in that edition as well. Almost like an appendix, yeah. Um, so yeah, 1611 King James Bible. Um, that was not the first translation to include the Apocrypha. The first complete translation of the Bible into another language, I believe, was the Armenian version. That's on your timeline there. And, uh, How about something like the Tyndale Bible? Tyndale was focused on the New Testament, and I don't think he ever completed the Old Testament. I could be wrong about that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he ever – yeah. And so it was not high up on his priority list. Um, now, when the 1611 Bible came out and they were translating, they pretty much stole what Tyndale had done. Okay. But they had to do some work because he hadn't completed it. So, um, yeah, so – yeah. I've got a King James. Is this what you're There you go. There. It's there. It's in your Bible. So it's in that Bible, and it's also in both of y'all have the Orthodox Study Bible. Yeah. That is um, not from the Catholic tradition. That is from the Orthodox tradition, which uses the Greek Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Their Old Testament is entirely based on the Greek translations. They consider that to be more authoritative so there's than scholars, the Hebrew tradition. Their scholars would just have to become experts in Greek. In Greek. They wouldn't worry about Hebrew. Uh, I wouldn't say they would never worry about it, but where they conflict, and there are times where there okay. are differences, they, they prioritize. Uh-huh. And by the way, just to, this adds a layer of complexity to it, but that's how the early church fathers and the apostles and Christ himself did it too. When yeah. the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures conflicted, most of the time when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, it's actually quoting the Greek. And sometimes if you look, you'll see a difference. Sometimes if you look at a, a quote from Christ and you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that, oh, this doesn't sound like what he said. Well, that's because he was using the Greek. So, you know, it's the Old Testament that Christ himself was using and the early church and the apostles. So this is complicated. Um, it's very complicated. And I, I'm not going to pretend to have a definitive answer on, you know, how we should approach this other than to say and I believe you said this in your study when you were talking about the agency of Scripture. I think I remember you saying that the authoritative word of God was in when it was spoken and written. And everything else is authoritative in as much as it adheres to that. Yeah. Now, the complexity is that we don't have the original text. So we have to use the whole of Scripture to sort of help us get back to the original but it does take a little bit of the pressure off of any particular tradition to be able to say that, no, the, the authoritative Sermon on the Mount was when Christ gave the Sermon on the Mount. That was the word of God. And our Bibles are authoritative in as much as they adhere to that. So does that – am I putting I, words exactly in your mouth right. or is yeah, that what yeah, you said? Uh, yeah. Again, yes, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture is based upon the original manuscripts, which we don't have. And the divine revelation, which right. happened at its when right. it was right. written, when it was yeah. penned. So. Now, some of the editing is also inspired. I mean, David wrote more psalms than 150. Mm-hmm. And some of those psalms were not written by David. Mm-hmm. So yeah. part of the editing and the compiling is also mm-hmm. included in the category of inspiration. Mm-hmm. So this is really complex. And... Um, it's important that we acknowledge that on the front end. I have a phrase that I'm going to be using here throughout this study that maybe I'll go ahead and introduce you guys to it. And I think this is the best approach that we can have with stuff like this is a spirit of reverent discernment. And that's a balanced approach of humility mixed with not just going along with everything. You know, there are some things that we're going to have to reject along the way. Some theological things that grew out of the apocryphal tradition we don't adhere to. We don't believe in purgatory. When Catholics are asked to defend purgatory, they use the Apocrypha to defend it. Now, I think it's a very weak argument to use the Apocrypha to defend it because they're basing it off of one interpretation of one verse in one book of the Apocrypha. So that's pretty weak. Um, so I don't blame the Apocrypha for that. I blame the theologians for it. But we're not past it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it still requires you know, discernment. And in as much as we do... Uh, encounter what we might call bad theology, you know, it, we are right to reject it. Now, I think we'll be surprised at how few times that happens here during this study. 
I think, uh, like I said, this is going to feel a lot more familiar than maybe people were expecting. But, um, but I do think that spirit is the right way that we approach these books, a balance of uh, reverent discernment. So, what, I think one of and I learned this in as a Catholic, the sin of presumption, where, mm-hmm. where you assume to know, you know, you know yeah. so we have to be very careful with that. So it's approaching things in humility. Yes. That, okay, I, I'm, I'm open to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I don't I don't think we have the full complete full knowledge of Scripture even yeah. at this point. So that's why we keep trying to do research or keep trying to get get back as to the originals as close as we possibly can. Yeah, and that's why it it, it will, you know, I mean the, the changes that have happened over the all the research are somewhat minor. Yeah, you know, changes, but they're still necessary changes. Yeah, yeah. this is why the study of or this, what do we call science of textual criticism is good. I mean, it has a bad reputation. And yeah. Well, there's a bunch of liberals. Gary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gary. And that, that's true to some extent, but some of these guys are conservative. They're trying yeah. to, they're trying to, as you say, get into yeah. the text, yeah. the best text they can get. As imperfect as their efforts are, they're doing this heavy lifting for they're us. Yeah. And, and we are indebted to their, exactly. their contributions yeah. to helping us understand this tradition. It's it, it's those that try to take, that have a, that, that, that try to bring an agenda in some yeah. ways, their own yeah. personal agenda yeah. to the scriptures and trying to make the scriptures fit their agenda yeah. as opposed to just trying to figure out exactly right. what the scriptures say. And it's so, <laughs> so difference. easy to fall into that trap. Yeah. It is yeah. so easy. And I'm not going to pretend that I would do any better than them. I kind of wish Greg was here because he, he likes to, he and I discuss different uh, traditions of, texts like the Alexandrian text versus the Byzantine text and which one is more authoritative. This is where we get into that. I mean, just the fact that we have a community of people who are doing that heavy lifting for us, we don't have to um, we don't have to cross that bridge every time we open our Bibles. And that is something for us to be very grateful for. Um, As imperfect as it is and as flawed as their attempts are sometimes um, we are still indebted to them. So uh, let's... I do think it's important for us to look at this timeline a little bit because you were talking about, well, when did it fall out of our Bibles? Um, Or when did they include it? Um, So we were talking about the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation. After the exile, so the tribes have been scattered. Alexander the Great conquers that whole area of the world, and now the common language is Greek. So as Jews are trying to preserve their tradition and hold on to their roots these uh their scriptures and then things around their scriptures including these stories are are uh translated into greek and it's a slightly older style than koine greek um and there it's a there are a lot more uh you know because it's a bigger amount of material it's a lot harder to read because there's a lot more words that you don't ever see in the new testament just because it's a bigger thing it's like um well, yeah, I mean, you get, you get the point. Um, and when was the Septuagint completed, or approximately? Between, I've got just a general thing here. The, uh, the law would have probably been translated first, and that would have been somewhere around 300 to 250 AD. So we're talking about the Pentateuch. And things, things closest to the Pentateuch, the prophets, the Psalms, those would have been earlier on. AD or BC? BC. Yeah. We're talking before, yeah. Um, During the silent period, again. Yes, yeah, quote-unquote silent. Um, yeah, I, I I don't really, at this point, I don't think it's as silent as maybe we, can, we assume it was. But, um, yeah, uh, so, um, so we're talking 300 to 250 A.D., or B.C., and then from then up until the birth of Christ, they just kept on translating. So we don't know exactly when a lot of these books were translated. We don't know when a lot of the prophets were translated, um, but it happened during that period. So that by the time Christ comes on the scene, the Old Testament's completed. These books have already been translated. The Apocrypha is very much a part of the Jewish tradition and is now like being included as on the same level as some of these uh, more peripheral prophetic books of the Old Testament. Greek was like uh, English today. It was language requirement. Yeah. Yes, there you go. And it's probably also important to point out that the way – Craig and I have discussed this – that the way the, the Jews – thought of scriptural authority was kind of like concentric circles. We sort of think, well, the Bible's authoritative. Here's the line. This is scripture. This is not. It was a little more complicated for the Jews because 
It's not linear. It, it's it's, circular. it's like it's, it's like a, when God speaks, it's like dropping a stone into a pond and it has a ripple outward effect. Right. So at the beginning of that is the Torah and they have the highest authority given to the Torah, the Pentateuch. Now it ripples out from there. The prophets who are commenting on the Torah, the Psalms are commenting on the Torah, but it's still scripture. But it's nested in the authority of the Torah. Mm-hmm. And then it goes out from there, the, the, you know, the prophets. And then we get into the Midrash, which is the rabbinical tradition built around. I brought up the Midrash in my uh, Tenebrae homily when I talked about how it was, it was built into Jewish custom to use Psalm 31.5, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, as a shorthand for praying the Shema. Well, the Shema existed in the first place as a way to live out the command in the Old Testament to bind Scripture unto your heart. Right, so this whole tradition is built out of a love for the central circle, the Torah, and how to best um, obey it and follow it. This whole tradition is built in order to draw people into uh, communion with that book. Am I explaining that right? So it's concentric circles going outward. Now yeah, that makes perfect sense. That is different than how we normally approach it yeah. because we think okay this is the bible anything right. not in here has no authority sola scriptura well this is probably the most controversial thing i'm going to say in this study i'm going to go ahead and get it out of the way uh sola scriptura is an illusion um <laughs> we can talk we can talk about we can talk about we can talk about prima scriptura we can talk about the bible is our prime authority in discerning what God has to say to us. But as long as we're reading from the Bible, we're using tradition to do that. It's, it's, it's an illusion to say that we value the Bible over tradition because those two things are intertwined. Because tradition informs what the Bible is. Yes, there's an interplay. Now... There are church councils, etc. Yeah, exactly. That's tradition. And we have tradition built into how we worship. I mean, we have a quote from the Didache in our liturgical uh, Eucharist liturgy. Um, the fact that we do the Eucharist every week, that is based on tradition. Um, uh, the fact that we decide which scriptures to read on Sunday mornings is based on a tradition. So scripture isn't uh, – the way we approach scripture is informed by tradition. Now, that doesn't mean that every tradition is equal to Scripture. Scripture, and notice, by the way, I'm using Scripture instead of the Bible. There is a distinction. Um, uh, Scripture is the head of the authority structure. It's like the relationship between a husband and wife, right? So the head is the husband. There is a head, and there is a top to the authority structure. But it's ridiculous to say that well, then there's no tradition. We, we, don't, we don't take any input for, from tradition. We just have the head. Well, no. in part, the husband exists because of the wife. Like, there's no wife, there's no husband. Right. Like, these things are interconnected. Um, and it's, it's the marriage of these two things that allow us to approach Scripture in the first place. It sounds like Athanasius' argument about the father and the son. Always yeah. father, always son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, then I, I have a question real quick. Uh, you, you may get into this if you do just let me know but uh, because then if I, if I am a, a sort of Hellenistic Jew yeah. who knows Greek and I'm trying to translate it but I get to a, a word in the Hebrew but there is no Greek word for that, that particular thing like the voice of the name of God you know, so, so how, yeah. how, do you, how, how does that change in a sense the tradition or change it, it might change it drastically. Yes. And here's a great example. Um, the virgin will conceive and bear a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hebrew is not nearly so precise. Gotcha. Hebrew would say the young, the young, young woman, maiden, the maiden. Yes. Now, that may include virgin, but it's not limited to virgin. And Septuagint is much more... Septuagint is a much more precise and exact language. So actually, it actually typically works the other way. Because Hebrew is a much more poetic, ambiguous language. So actually, what the translators were doing were actually honing it further. Instead of losing 
stuff, mm -hmm. they were actually making things more precise wow. most of the time. Wow. Now, there's exceptions to that. Wow. Wow. And, which, which we yeah. try to do that with our English Bible at this point in time, yeah. too. have so many different translations of, the, of, of our types of English Bibles, yeah. and all of them are trying to be maybe more precise than the one that came before. Yeah, but, right, you know, right. And there is a be, limit to that. Yes, you know, there, right. you can't so, go too far with that. Because then, because then your prejudice comes in, in a sense, yes. of trying to make the Bible, you know, so... Yeah. Uh, I just remember in the Old Testament where I think I think uh, Moses says, "I wish that all of you were prophets or something like that." I wish it, I wish that everybody was a prophet. Saw some kind of like a Baptist translation that mm -hmm. completely cuts that out, you know. So and uh, doesn't want doesn't want everybody being prophetic. It's only for leadership or something like that. So this is this is one major difference. Uh, uh, Sorry, I just want to say this before I forget it. This is one major... I thought you were about to say something. Well, I can say something. This is one major difference between how our tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, approaches the scriptures versus how um, uh, the, the, the Islamic faith approaches the scriptures. Wow. Because they believe that the original language is um, so sacred that any translation, by definition, is so inferior that yeah. you're, you basically shouldn't use it. That's you right. need to, when they're proselytizing, when they're sharing scripture, they, they are pretty much required to use the original text. Otherwise, they're not quoting scripture because for them, scripture is in the original, mm -hmm. the way it was written in the Quran. And so, so there's no separation for them between the secular and the sacred because the culture of Islam is so closely tied. Does that make sense with their text? Um, we don't have that assumption in our tradition, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. We believe that God's word is bigger than any one language, right? And so it, it yes, he uses particular languages in time. You know, he, he uh, orchestrated the Alexander's conquest of the known world, so that the the New Testament would spread. It, right? it really requires a, a requires a faith in God that He guides history. Yes. In order to in order to give authority to the scriptures we have today. Yes. Because if you don't, if, if you if you don't do that, then you're stuck thinking like the like mm -hmm. the Islamic, you know. Yeah. Uh, that. Only the, the very original yeah. text, but but I don't think that's what God wants. I think I think He wants us to have faith in His hand as it work. It, even even in the messiness of human human history, trying to get it right and failing sometimes, we have to have faith in His hand as it work in that. Well, is, Islam yeah. obviously has warped, like yeah. like who Jesus is. They've walked to the max. And, <laughs> and again, again, in, in the spirit of reverent discernment, it is so easy for us to fall into that trap. It you is. Know, exactly I, remember, right. I remember working at Lifeway and people telling me that they wanted, you know, they wanted the original translation and they're talking about KJV. Yeah. And, you know, oh, if it was good enough for Paul, it's good yeah. enough for the me. The Holy Bible. And that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually had someone tell me that. Like, yeah. 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 And they just fell on the floor and started confessing. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to ask the closest thing maybe in the kind of the Christian tradition would be like the era when the Catholic Church really did want to control like the, the text more so and kept it in the Latin. I mean, I know that might that be is that is a comparable. Said, but, we could talk about the comparisons the fact there. That yeah, had to learn Latin in order to right. really experience right. the scriptures. The translation from the scriptures into English was, I mean, people were dying for that because yeah. they. It was it was messing with their authority structure sure. and you know their power that they had accumulated by keeping the word of God tied up into keep this. Ig yeah. ignorant, keep people's ignorance. And by the way, since we're talking about the Latin, that's a great time to point yeah. out that. Can I say one thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. So and you may be, you may have been planning on getting into this, but there's a there's a uh, pretty well pretty famous conspiracy theory, if you will, that um, that the the Septuagint was written, okay, the Septuagint is written a few hundred years before Christ, right? Yes. And so we know that. That's history. 
But then, then the, the Septuagint is so obviously Christological. You just you can't read it without seeing Christ. It's we already gave one example. The Virgin will yeah, see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jesus quotes it. Uh, the apostles use it. it creates Christology all in it. And so it just so happens that we don't have any any original Hebrew texts past uh, a translation done by a Jew named Aquila who lived in the first, I forget, it was the first 100 or 200 years A.D. So there's a, there's a theory out there that says that they took the Septuagint and kind of watered down the Christology to bring back the Hebrew scriptures mm-hmm. as they are now and, and kind of de Christianize them a little bit. Yeah. It, even with the Hebrew then, it's there, but, you know, maybe not as overt. An example of that would be like in the Psalms, if it's talking about the anointed one, the Hebrew, the conspiracy theorists would say that they kind of edited the Hebrew a little bit to make it seem more like David than yeah. about the coming right. of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, I mean, in reality, it was about both. I mean, yeah, the, right, yeah. the prophecies work in, like, sort of false peaks. Right. I mean, that's how, that's how biblical prophecy <laughs> works. No doubt, the Septuagint, being the early Christians, would have read that as being about Christ. They were anticipating no the Messiah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And so the Jews were stuck with this translation, hey, it's got Christ all over. What do we do? Yeah. You know? So uh, this isn't what we wanted, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they had to do some. Now that um, uh, we know about that theory among the early church fathers, because mm-hmm. Tertullian wrote about it. Yeah, it was Tertullian. By the way, I think he's the same person who innovated the word Trinity. So this is a powerhouse yeah. of a theologian. This is one of the most prolific writers in the early church, and he has shaped our theology in more ways than we know. Now he, his, he was complaining that that there was this difference between the Hebrew text and the Greek text, and the only way that he could reconcile that was to say that it had been tampered with by the Jews who didn't like the church rising up, and they wanted their Bible to be less Christological. But, but what you're showing, or going to show here, I think, in these early, these uh, apocryphal books, yes. is that just as the early church was reading the Septuagint and seeing Christ all over yes. the place, that these people, or whoever they were, yes. before Christ, had almost the same messianic expectations. Yes, as they were reading the old, the Old Testament, yes. Septuagint, etc. Right, right. Amazing. Yeah, if you have a Christological approach to the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament, if we're going to use the example of concentric circles, these books were built out of that. Sure. Ripple effect of anticipating the Messiah. So there's an increasing anticipation of Messiah. Yes. Say in yeah. 200 AD or BC, uh-huh. 100 BC, they're really anticipating mm-hmm. Messiah, final Messiah's born. Yes, for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about kind of a bigger picture too. On this is that, you know, in, in one sense, the way God operates in order to create Christianity, He basically destroys Judaism. I mean, I know it still exists, but it's it's, a, it's sort of null and void. Uh, it's complicated. You know, yeah, it's, it's complicated very complicated because when so Jesus... He, to, what I'm saying is that in order to yeah. construct, God often destructs first. Yes. Destructs and then constructs. You know, so, uh, we, we, can say he, we can say he transforms it for sure. I mean, when he's on the cross... I'm going to reference my Tenebrae homily again. When he prays um, the evening portion of the liturgical Shema on the cross... He's not nullifying Jewish tradition. I mean, he's making that his, the first and foremost new creation prayer. Right. It's a very Jewish prayer. Well, and he's including that into the... Yeah, but it's scripture. It yeah. scripture. And so there is a transformation that goes on. Um, the way to look at it uh, might be that the incarnation blows up the Jewish view of scripture because it's rock. It's Christ is the rock that hits the water. Yes. And so all the circles are coming out of him. Yes. Not Yes. So things that we thought might be Christological in the Old Testament, when Christ comes, it definitely shows that they are Christological. <laughs> I mean, what does he say? He's causing the And what does he say in Luke 24 to the disciples at the Emmaus Road is that all of the law and the prophets, all of the writings, and that includes the Midrash and the Apocrypha and everything, in as much as it is here to the originals, it's about Christ. It is all about Christ. And this tradition is caught up in that. It is caught up. It was, it was incorporated into 
the Old Testament as these Jews under persecution were, were desperately anticipating the Messiah. So that is the framework that they were looking through when they were writing these well, books. Well, I guess what I'm saying about the destruct, you know, he, yeah. in a sense, reconstructs the Bible into Greek. Mm-hmm. You know, so because it, it then it becomes a, a more God-ordained version of the scriptures in a sense. So because it's more Christ-centered. Writings, the law prophets and the writings. The writings, you're including the Apocrypha as part of the writings. That the the writings? To, yeah, so, yeah, there's three categories, right? There's law, law prophets, prophets, and writings. Yeah. Um, I think for the first century people who heard that, I think they would have understood that these okay. were part of that. And there were other books, too. I mean, they probably would have included the Book of Enoch in that. They probably would have included a couple other books that are quoted in Scripture but are not in our Bible. Um, I don't think this is necessarily an exhaustive list, but these were the ones that have been caught up into our tradition nonetheless. In the second century, they were including First Clement. That is true. And for what it's worth, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church considers First Clement to be Scripture. Yeah. So, so, so talk, talk about the 1885, I guess the revised... That is when it happened. That is when it stopped being in our Bibles. So let me let me backtrack just a little bit. You mentioned Latin, Danielle. Yes. Jerome, before I forget, Jerome, the person who translated into Latin, was the first person to bracket the Apocrypha off into an appendix. Until that point, it was it was in with the Old Testament. They were not two distinct categories. And when Jerome translated he gave the Hebrew priority, and he said, we're going to consider the Hebrew to be more authoritative a tradition because it's earlier, therefore it's more legit. And in doing so, he's had to set the Apocrypha aside because the Jews don't consider the Apocrypha scripture. You know, it's not our, – our texts of the Apocrypha are not Hebrew, so – he, Jerome was the person to separate them and from then on it had its own category in the Vulgate in the entire Catholic tradition it has been included in it but it is yeah and that is a big difference uh, between um, the Vatican and the Orthodox approach because if you go in that Orthodox Bible it's all part of the Old Testament it's sprinkled through it's not a category that's what I was going to ask because yeah. they, they never really used Jerome's their, their language was so yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the Orthodox have two testaments, old and new. The Catholics have old and new, and then like 1A. You know, it's like included in the Old Testament, but it's still its own category. Um, we don't have it at all because come 1885, when they were revising the King James Version, and I can't find a reason why they did this. I really looked. Uh, there was a bishop in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, who decided, uh, probably rightly so, that the, um, the KJV was getting outdated and needed to be more in the common language of the people. I mean, over 200 years had passed. Almost 300 years had passed at that point. Well, a lot of the Elizabeth, Elizabethan English was uh, out of date. Yeah. For instance, the word let means don't allow in Elizabethan yeah, English, so that causes a lot of uh, yeah. confusion. So I mean, they, you know, it was, it was, it was good that they did a translation. I mean, they kind of they opened the door to the tsunami of English translations that have come in since then. The first one, this was the revised version. Revised standard, not yeah. the revised standard. Right, and this, by the way, this is this is my book of the Apocrypha. It is written in the revised standard version. So wow. this was the translation of the Apocrypha that came out at that time, but they translated it separately. Gotcha. It was not in their gotcha. in their gotcha. Bible. They translated a copy of the New Testament first, and they just published that, I think, in 1881, I think. And then in their next edition, they included the Old Testament without including the Apocrypha. And then from then on, in our Protestant tradition, it has been that way ever since. So this, this particular moment where it was cut out from the Bible... Seemingly kind of arbitrary. I, I think at that point it just didn't seem as important. You know, it was already sort of pushed to the side and under uh, Protestant sensibilities of trying to stick as close to the bare essentials as you can. I think it just kind of 
Well, Why got, would they include it? You then, know? then you have to buy two books, too. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so anyway, that is, that is the moment when it changed. Wow. That was only 150 years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. Any time between Christ and now, aside from that 150 years, this has been in our Bibles. So... Um, what else you got? Before you go any further, yeah. this is also Greek to me, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listening. Yeah. But uh, I just noticed in the back of my Bible where it has apocrypha that it was accepted by the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. But most Protestants rejected it. Yes. And I'm thinking, uh, and I don't mean to offend anybody, uh, uh, there's false worship in the Catholic Church. Yes. Worshiping Mary, uh, purgatory, different things that I don't believe in. Right. And some good Protestants like Brother Nick, I'm sure, would... Uh, uh, I guess my, my question is, the group of men that wrote the books of the Apocrypha, could I relate them with great church fathers since the apostles that we read, like Chrysostom, I mean, all of the church fathers, how great that information is, but Scripture still being the authority. You will find on the back of your page that that is my approach. I put them sort of on the same level as the church fathers, if that's what you're saying. That's is what that what I'm you're saying? saying? That's yeah. What I'm saying. I that's put them the on the free, same sort I'll of. Call them free and the others. Yeah. But that's what I'm seeing. And my question to you is, for a little bit, yeah. uh, it seems to me that the Protestants would have accepted studying these books. Yes. But according to this, it says most Protestants rejected. You have a, as authoritative. Yes. As as. As part of our tradition of scripture, yeah, 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 yeah. So, is it just a lack of understanding? Was it a complete rebellion on their part um, to be open-minded to read these great men? I think it depends on which time in history we're talking about. You know, and you know, if we're talking about the Reformation, Martin Luther and some of those others, their their primary concern was strip everything down to the bare essentials because the tradition has gone so out of control. Now, they were going so far as to cut out books that we consider scripture. Like um, Martin Luther thought that James shouldn't be in the New Testament, right? And so we can say pretty confidently that he went too far. Like, we, you know, we can say pretty confidently. The pendulum swing. Yes. yes. Martin Luther was trying to cut out some of the undergrowth. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I think think it's... the weeds and he hit the plant. I think it's also (laughs) worth pointing out... Should be as a weed eater. (laughs) That the fact that they were sort of summarizing scripture under a central like category of theology is also kind of going too far. Now it may have been helpful at the time for them to sort of work through what was essential. And I'm not saying it was completely without merit, but for instance, the 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 the, the tulip model of Calvin, the um, you know, he basically puts anything that you can learn in the Bible, you can fit under, you know, these the bare essentials of the five points of Calvinism. I don't I think that's I think that's going too far. I really do because it's 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 putting Calvin between you and the Bible and yeah. you know that is just another form of idolatry yeah. and mm-hmm. and I don't think I'm not saying that Calvinists are all you know no. worshiping idols. That's not what I mean. I mean that I mean that it is it's just replacing one branch of tradition for another. Well, and it's it goes back to the illusion of we make of, things too easy on ourselves. Like yeah. you say with a simple model and say, Well that's all sure. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, this is an uh, this is a horrific overstatement, but uh, I think a lot of Protestants reject the Old Testament. Yeah. I know. Well, they well, yeah. see it. They see it as history it's, only. It's one more thing that I don't have to feel guilty about yeah. not reading. Yeah. 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 Now, to their, I'm going to play devil's advocate here just a little bit because I. This, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but since you're talking about rejecting the Old Testament, I, I do think that there are varying degrees of authority within Scripture. Now, I have to explain what I mean by that. <laughs> um, speaking practically, we do not hold Leviticus on the same authoritative level as we do the Gospel of John or really any of the New Testament. 
because a lot of those laws have been changed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so we, we can approach the Old Testament the way we do because of the New Testament. Right. And so that means, practically speaking, that the New Testament is more authoritative than much of the Old Testament. Well, I would say that Christ is more authoritative. Christ is more authoritative. And his authority for having met all those all those regulations, they're still valid. Not yeah. one word of the law will ever pass. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. But it's it was divine revelation, scriptural authority, like it's all there. Yeah. We're not we're not cutting it out of our Bible. But However, that, that requires a Christological mm-hmm. approach to the Old Testament. Yeah. Which you know is something that Protestants tend to skip over. I have to teach this in July down in Bolivia. Uh, I'm teaching a section on law and gospel, and the, you know what? It's it's other material that's already been developed, which I don't really like to do that. But anyway, <laughs> I've got to do it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so <clears throat> you know the uh, the rhetorical questions are: Should we obey the law and this and that and the other? And on and on, but they never really deal with what the law is. So the first thing I'm going to do is, is I'm going to let us read some law, like the kosher laws in the Old Testament, some other stuff like that, mm-hmm. and I ask the audience, well, now how much of this shall we obey or shall we not? I, I hope they'll take the bait, and then I you know, want to show that, well, I mean, with the coming of Christ and the new covenant, a lot of this has been abrogated. They don't apply anymore. Yeah. I think the illustration of the ripple effect continues to apply, though. Yes. Christ is the rock, and then you have the New Testament, and then informing well, the ripples yeah, from there. He is the rock. Yeah, exactly. That the builders rejected the corner. <laughs> so, that's a good analogy, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. So the building falls. <laughs> Boy, you talk about making a splash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What a splash it is. Still, We're still feeling the ripple Absolutely. of it. So. Yeah, the ripple continues. But you know, getting back to Calvinists, I was for a long time going to these Calvinistic things they were doing at uh, at Rhodes College, and uh, I would find myself, you know, here's all the Calvinists over here with each other enjoying each other's company. I would be over on the side because I happened to mention that I was charismatic. So it's like, whoa, same thing with that guy. So they're missing out. They're missing out the theology doesn't allow them to see that God still works in miraculous ways, if that makes sense. So. I have been in a charismatic Calvinistic church, so it's, it's out there, or at least performed. Yeah. But, well, our, our church is a weird blend. You know, we're Southern Baptists, but here we are talking about the Apocrypha. Yeah. Well, this was back 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, things have, yeah, things have changed, changed again. So to, go, so. to go backwards, though, I mean, you talked early on about sort of like different levels of inspiration and to hit on the Septuagint again uh, that was translated because one of the Ptolemies wanted to be able to read the Hebrew scripture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ptolemies were successors to Alexander in that region uh, so uh, so we get we get this interpretation or translation of Isaiah that says specifically virgin God is directing all of this stuff yes he yes. put all me in place and made him want to add this to his library and there and then it was translated into Greek later on a prominent rabbi said the Septuagint is the worst thing that ever happened <coughs> presumably because the the common lay folk could read it so yeah but, but all this is directed by God yeah, yeah. to sorry go ahead no, I just to say I appreciate what your dad said, that it requires trust in God. It does, yeah. Through it is, all these translations. Yeah. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to seek it out. And so God is glorified by the complexity. Not, not despite the complexity. It is the complexity itself that makes us worship God more. That, yeah. You don't want God to Correct. Uh, to your point, there are reasons why. The Apocrypha was rejected. And I have listed six. These are all the reasons that I can think of and that I have found when I've been interacting with this stuff for why you would want to reject this group of books. Um, the, the complicated thing is that as I've gone through, all of these arguments have fallen apart. I don't think any of these arguments 
at the end of the day really stand and I can I can refute any of them right now um, not considered inspired by Jews well okay they don't they don't accept the New Testament either no, like they're, that, they're not the standard for what is scripture because again it's about Christ they are not the center of the of the concentric circles um, not written by the prophets well we can apply that to the Old Testament and we can throw out some books if we want to but I don't think we want to do that um, and then we can go through the rest of them. We're running out of time, and I want to make sure that if anybody has any burning comments or things that they want to add to this, I would rather do this slow and get it right than rush through this. So we can, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. One, one thing, too, is because you said secret books, which I totally agree with what yeah, you're saying, yeah, but yeah. in a sense, could it also possibly mean that there are hidden messages within these that are secret only to those who are able to comprehend them yeah. or receive them like a parable. It's possible. I mean, these books, some of these books are more like parables. <laughs> and so I guess that's probably not what they meant when they said that, but that may be part of it. Um, you know, Tobit is very much a parable. You know this because yes. you've read it. Um, now, a lot of the Apocrypha is more historical type stuff, like what you would find in the Chronicles or in the King's books. Um, it's just covering a different period of right. Jewish history. Like but there are some parables sprinkled in. Like there's a story about Daniel and a dragon that's very obviously a parable. Um, it's a different genre. So, I, that, yeah, we could say that's a factor. Yeah, so I can, if, if I have special knowledge, I can understand what the parable means about Daniel and the dragon. But we could apply that to... Things in the New Testament, sure, too. Like Christ speaks in parable. Yeah, so these are no so, more hidden than, right, right, yeah, right, right. yeah. Just well, be- this, and this is that that high wire act between orthodoxy and Gnosticism. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's apocrypha. I don't know when that first started to be used, but it could be a, a Gnostic term. It could be. Yeah, I love. Sometimes when people are talking about apocrypha, they're talking about. Books like the Gospel of Thomas, right? Yeah. Or yeah. yeah, I mean, we 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 completely reject those, right? And that's not what we're. That's one reason why I don't like that title. Is it's too, yeah. uh, it's it's used in different ways. So. What are those called? Gospel of Thomas. These other books Heresy. outside. Of <laughs> Heresy. 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 Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they're in the genre of gospel. They're written like the gospels. Yeah. But uh, they would fit under the category of pseudepigrapha because they're using the name of an apostle, and they're written obviously much later than that. So, like the Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas. Okay, but why about Enoch? You've mentioned Enoch. That is a that is a very different category. That is um, that was written in BC times, so it was written before the Christ event. It was written. Parts of it were probably written around the same time that these books were. It would have been during the. the quote 400 years of mm-hmm. silence and that is in the genre of apocalypse like revelation or daniel and so it reads very similar to those and actually a lot of the stuff that you read in revelation is not a commentary on but built on the structure that was sort of established by first enoch when really? it, the the readers the readers of um well, it's both. Yeah. You know, it, that is the yeah. it's a it's, it's a, a it's a genre. It's Ezekiel, ripple. Genesis. Yeah. These are all these all have um, this sort of symbolic apocalyptic aspect to it. And so, First Enoch is in that tradition. So it's a different it's a different genre entirely. Yeah, yeah. The first point here, not considered inspired by Jews. I'm still trying to understand because you said that it was included in the Septuagint. Correct. So it was sort of accepted into their. I would say it developed, and I don't think there's necessarily any hard line that we can draw. Um, I think by the time by the time Christ came on the scene, they were just caught up in the tradition, and I think it sort of it, it's not like there was a council that sat down and figure this out. I mean, the first time that we have a clear council stating was in like the 300s. I think that's on your timeline. The Council of Carthage, where they said, yeah, this is, we consider this scripture. So is it more so that Jewish people today would not accept them? As Correct. Scripture, they wouldn't. They uh, some of them would, some of them wouldn't. And the, clo- the more Christologically minded they were, the more apt they would have been to accept these books. But again, it just kind of happened. It's not like they all sat down and 
argued it out. It just, yeah. Could we have an emergency prayer request before we? Absolutely. Could you pray on this? Absolutely. Read it. This is from Vladimir. Okay. Katie, I have a prayer request. Patrick called 20 minutes ago to let me know he's at ER in Franklin. I don't know if you remember what happened a few years ago when he was choking and had to have his esophagus stretched. Oh, no. That's what he thinks is happening again. He just had to come to Jackson and have it checked in, waiting to see doctor. Please pray that they would have a doctor available to do what needs to be done. He's okay. Here, he's in Jackson. He's in Franklin. He's in Franklin. So he's going to come back here. He's trying yeah. to. Yeah, well. Okay, so we'll stop here. Yeah, and we'll pray for this real quick. <clears throat> God, we pray for our brother Patrick. We pray for peace for their family. We pray that um, um, the doctors would be available. We pray that there would be no delays in waiting and that very soon uh, they would be able to do this operation and, and resolve what needs to be resolved. Um, uh, we uh, pray your kingdom into this situation and we pray your peace over their whole family. And uh, we pray that you would be glorified through this, uh, this emergency. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we will consider this our stopping point. I would, like I said, I would rather go slow and get this right than to rush through. There's plenty of stuff in this two-sided page we could still talk about, but we'll cover that next week. Thank you all. Thank you.